Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Recorded live. Hello, everybody. This is Lisa with Charismatic Woman. We are in week two of Goddess School. Um, we are a small group today. It's me and Alicia. Alicia is not feeling super well, so I'm probably going to monologue my way through most of this call. And if you're catching this in the archive, it's probably going to be a short one, so you don't have a lot to sit through today. Um, our goddess for this week is in drawing. And I love her for a number of reasons. First of all, she studied. I mean, when we think about goddess material, we tend to think about Greek goddesses or the Roman goddesses, that is sort of Greek mythology to mind. But Andrani is the wife of Lord Indra in his mythology. Um, he was the god of gods. So she is the goddess, the queen goddess of all goddesses in Hindu mythology. And she's known typically for being the goddess of anger. Of, and she's kind of known for having a fiery, fiery temper. And was very well respected because of that fiery temper that she's got. But I tend to believe that it wasn't really like that. all emotion. I mean, I think probably most of the time as the supportive wife of the God of gods, she had very big emotion all the way around. I mean, joy was probably goddess-sized joy. Sadness was probably goddess-sized sadness. And this is a goddess who felt things strongly. And I think that's really key. Like, there's feeling of our feelings and allowing those feelings is really, really important because as humans, we are trained out of our emotions really early. We learn they're really appropriate. And the first emotion we get trained out of is almost all and you learn at a very, very early age that temper tantrums do not fly. They don't work. You get, you know, they, they're frowned upon for sure. You learn that expressing frustration and expressing rage really makes other people very uncomfortable. And so, particularly as women, I think we are trained out of what might be our less ladylike emotions from a very, very early age. And the problem with that is you can't suppress emotion in isolation. Like as we learn to suppress our anger, as we learn that our anger is not appropriate or not okay for other people, we start to feel less and less of that anger. It starts to get a little bit dull and a little bit softer and all our emotions diminish proportionately. When you can't feel all of your rage, you also feel less of your joy. When you can't feel or sadness or angst, you feel less excitement and on the other side of that spectrum. And so there's the consequence even the ones think the consequence is almost inevitable. We don't know what we've cut ourselves off from on the other end of the spectrum. I think what's really inspiring to me about Andrane is she's got, right, absolutely her people, her mortals, and because she's the wife of the god of gods in Hindu mythology, like the other goddesses and gods had to love her. It wasn't optional. 
requirement of being in freedom. And therefore, she never felt like she had to bank any of her emotion, any of her feelings back to be loved. And I think that's really the challenge for mortal women, right? Mortal women tend to feel like when they are feeling something that might be considered on the darker range of emotion and it's not appropriate or it makes other people uncomfortable, that expressing that in some way makes them less lovely. And when we up that expression to be in an attempt to be loved, again, we're giving up the higher range of our emotional scale and we don't even know we've done it. And as we do that, we lose our sparkle and shine. A lot of the really bright aspects of our personality start to fade because we're just, we think it's going to make us more lovable and in the end actually makes us less attractive. I mean, when I wrote this material, I Lisa, two three years ago. Yeah. I'm uh, sorry to interrupt. You seem to be cutting in and out. I don't oh, know. No. I was going to say, I'm mostly catching it, but I'm also thinking on the recording, this might be a little bit hard to hear at times. I will go back. Hang on. Is that better? Yeah, that sounds better. Um, when I wrote this material, I mean, it was two or three years ago I went through this, and when I was reading it this week, it was really clear to me that this is really pertinent, because at this point in time, I think a lot of people are feeling a lot of anger, and maybe even particularly a lot of women are feeling some anger, some rage, some some righteous indignation, and It's interesting to me to see how women are expressing or feeling or moving through that anger as a community and as a group. And it's not just in the States, like we talked about this in the intro call. This isn't just a U.S. thing. I think it's sort of a global thing with a community of women who are experiencing the expression and the reality of their anger. And we're finding that in community, that anger is getting more and more appropriate and maybe even more and more necessary for the evolution of our communities and our planet at large. I mean, it's a, it's a big deal. And so this aspect of ourselves that we have been trained out of, which is the expression of our darker emotions, is actually becoming much more appropriate as we're moving forward. And I think we're learning relearning how to be with our anger and understand that it can be constructive. I think, I mean, some of you who will listen to this know that, you know, politically I have struggled with how to manage the balance of my anger or how my anger gets expressed in the world and how to deal with my anger as a deliberate creator. And I think that has been an interesting lesson for me to get to learn in this sort of political environment. But by learning it through this political environment, through what's going on sort of nationally slash globally, I'm getting better at it in my personal life. I mean, as a little girl raised by a woman who was raised by a strong woman, we, we sort of gauged our strength by our ability not to express our anger, but control our anger. And now that anger is becoming more appropriate to express, I think I'm seeing that play out in really, really, really positive ways in other areas of my life. So when I look at Indrani and this material from two or three years ago when we put it on paper, I think that she may be, I mean, some would say that Kalima is the goddess of the day. Um, Andrani also has that same energy. She may be the goddess of the moment because she's really, really rooted in this understanding that she can be all of her emotions, even if it's anger. She can be that anger. 
and it doesn't change how people respond to her or how people feel about her. I mean, her understanding that that deep and powerful expression of those darker emotions actually makes her more attractive and more powerful is really, really profound for right now. So, and it looks like Monique is here, I think, and Janet is here. Is Janet dialed in yet? Janet, are you dialed in yet? Doesn't look like it. So I'm going to toss it back to you, even though I said I wasn't going to. Is there any parts of that from the beginning that I that you couldn't hear, Alicia? Should I repeat any of that, or you kind of got the majority of the gist of it? I think I got the gist of it. I mean, the gist of it really is that, I mean, you, like I said, you can't numb an emotion or suppress an emotion selectively. That if you, because of your training for being an appropriate woman, start to repress, start to hold in or bank down your anger, you are also holding down and banking down your joy and your passion proportionately. And the challenge that we experience as women is that we are taught from the time we are itty-bitty that anger is not appropriate, that it doesn't work and that other people are uncomfortable with it. So with Indrani as kind of that inspiration, I think it gives us sort of a muse for how to be powerfully angry as women without necessarily being afraid that people aren't going to love us when we are expressing or experiencing that anger. I, I know, I'm doing it again. Were you taught that anger, when you were a little girl, were you taught that anger was okay or were you taught that anger was not okay? Felicia. I was definitely taught that it was not okay, especially from women. And um, I think because of that, the anger that I did see was the anger that came out after it had been bottled up. So it came out really rashly and I know that's the case for me. And I mean, I think working couples particularly, I see that a lot. Like women, they repress their anger, they hold it down, they hold it down, they hold it down, and the frustration and the resentments build and build and build. I mean, boys are taught from a very young age that they can be present in real time with their anger. And girls are taught that anger is not pretty. So, I mean, if you're repressing it and holding it down, it does become an eventual explosion of some kind of emotion. And that that actually is, is not pretty. I mean, when we can't be in real time with our anger, it, it is going to bottle out or bottle up and it's going to explode at some point. Go ahead. I think what I was just going to say is that it seems like that's when it tends to be more destructive because... Because when it gets to the point of an explosion, it's bigger than what you could handle. Whereas if you address it in present time, it's, it tends to be, you know, it's more pertinent to current time. It's not taking on all of the problems that have built up, but just the present problem. Yeah, totally. I think, I mean, that's a very literal and accurate assessment that when it gets to the point where it blows, it has, be, it has become, by its nature, something that is not controllable anymore. And that is going to be much, 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 much more destructive. I mean, there's, it's going to be hard to find a constructive piece of that when it has become uncontrolled that way. And, again, I mean, boys and men don't do this. Women do. I mean, like they are trained that it is not okay. And yet, we're finding ourselves in a time of history where women's anger is women's righteous indignation is a real tool for constructive change and growth and evolution. So, Janet, you're dialed in now. Thoughts on that? I am. I'm really interested in the whole thing about anger because I have a really had a really vexed relationship with it. I was definitely taught that anger was not okay. In fact, 
um, showing anger was kind of guaranteed to create enormous turmoil and it was much safer to just shove it down. And that led to all kinds of issues with boundaries and other stuff. Um, but what I'm really fascinated by is the way that whether we lash out or whether we suppress it, neither of those is particularly effective. So I think this is a really interesting and timely conversation generally for women, for everybody, but for women. It, I think women are leading this conversation perhaps because we understand it instinctively in a different way because of our shared experience of, of having to control no, control's not the right word. Suppress is a better word. Repress. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think this is a, a subject that's ripe for conversation. And I think it also has to be, as any conversation, when anger is involved, I think communication has to be, if anything, more thoughtful and carefully crafted than at any other time which seems counterintuitive um, because anger has the potential for destruction sort of built within it. Um, I know I've had the experience of <clears throat> completely wrecking a relationship because I happened to lash out and there was no recovering from the way that that happened in that circumstance. And I'm going back several years now, like a couple of decades. Um, if I were to have that conversation now, I would probably have had it very differently um, and and from a much more self-aware perspective. I agree with that. I mean, I think that that is one of the reasons that I'm going to generalize here because it's women on the phone so I can get away with it. I think that's <laughs> one of the reasons anger is such a constructive force for women, even more so than it is for men. I mean, men can express their anger and it can be destructive and I mean that in itself can be powerful. Women can be destructive with their anger too. That can also be powerful. So because women are naturally more distinct and compassionate communicators, the fact that we naturally communicate in a more loving and compassionate way, even when we're angry, that sort of heightened ability we have to communicate can make that anger incredibly constructive rather than destructive. And it doesn't necessarily mean that in its delivery it feels really sweet and soft. But that thought that we need to be more careful when we're angry about our, our type and our level of communication, I think that is sort of the natural realm of expression for women and therefore anger for women can be a really, really positive thing for everyone who's affected by it. And that's an interesting perspective because it's almost the opposite of what we are taught. When we are taught to repress it, we're taught the opposite. <laughs> it's true. I mean, like I said, I was taught in my family, the women in my family are, this is not going to surprise anyone, opinionated, loudmouthed, at times brash, and occasionally, or more than occasionally, a little hot around the edges. And so we were taught, and when I say my family, I'm talking about my mother's lineage, like my mother and her sisters and her mother and her mother. I mean, a particularly fiery group of women. And so we were taught as women in our lineage that we were... Our, our power was measured by our willingness to bank down our anger. Just, I mean, it's like our willingness to suppress was actually a sign of strength. In, and it's not really a sign of strength, but it was looked upon as a sign of strength in our family because there was a perception, there still is a perception with the women in my mother's family that you don't want to piss them off because it's it's not going to be pretty. And I think that's really those words, it's not going to be pretty. I heard that or something like that a lot growing up. 
Yeah, I and, would agree with that, that it's not attractive, I think is what I recall. And in Indrani, like this energy of this goddess, she did not care. And when I think about it from an energetic attractiveness standpoint, again, I mean, like when we're banking it down because you can't dull yourself selectively, you are also doling the pieces of that energetic sort of personality spectrum that make us incredibly attractive. The passion, the joy, the excitement, like all of those things that are traditionally known for being incredibly, incredibly attractive also start to dull on the other end. And when I look at myself, I can see how that happens. I mean, can Janet, do you see how any of that happened to you? Um, yeah, it's an interesting... It's, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yes. I sort of... I think I might still struggle to articulate it fully, but yes, I get the sense of it. I mean, when I think about... And this is in the materials for this week. Like, things that plague women like 21st century women, there's a list, lethargy, depression, lack of interest, absence of joy, fatigue, illness, listlessness, listlessness, sadness, anxiety. Like all of those things sort of clinically are a result of doling emotions. And I mean, we dole emotions in lots of ways by suppressing them through force, through addictive behaviors, through all kinds of things. And so much of that pattern of knowing our emotions started for us as mortal women in childhood when we learned that our anger was not appropriate. And when I look at that list, if I, like, go back, if I pretend it's a straight line, which is probably not that simple, but if I could not experience depression, if I never have to experience lack of interest or absence of joy or fatigue or illness or listlessness or sadness or anxiety, and anxiety is a big one, by simply being willing to be present with and express as necessary my anger, I think that's a pretty that's a pretty solid trade off. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I am going to skip forward. What I want to do today is go through kind of one by one the goddess training exercises and give it just a quick discussion because I think there's some good stuff in here. Um, The first one is allow yourself to be affected. If you see something that breaks your heart, makes you furious, or gives you the warm fuzzies, indulge it. Really experience the things that you are exposed to. Do not allow yourself to be numb to, a note, to emotional input and then give yourself permission to let it go and move on. I think when we look around right now, this concept of allowing yourself to be fully affected so that you can experience it and let it go if you need to and move on is particularly pertinent. Because there's a lot of things happening at this juncture where we might want to kind of roll up into a ball and cover our heads and not look. But we are affected by those things and allowing ourselves to feel how we are affected is important. I mean, that willingness to allow yourself to feel what breaks your heart expands your your ability to feel the joy when you are affected by something that sparks that. So I'm going to toss it around. Janet. Allow yourself to be affected. How do you feel about that? I really like it. I really like it. I I think because I've been so aware lately of just how habitual my avoidance of certain emotions has been. Um, anger recently, not so much. Um, I'm getting better at that one, but there are a couple of other very murky ones which are muddier than anger. They don't have that sort of... Anger can have a singing clarity about it that I think there are other emotions that don't. Um, for example, um, 
I've spent the last three days trying to settle to writing sales copy for a program that I've got coming up and I have not been able to do it and it has been driving me bats. And I've been avoiding the way I've felt about it. I have felt confused and frustrated and self, not self-loathing exactly, but been annoyed with myself that I, I, you know, I should be able to do this and I can't, blah, 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 blah. It turns out that it was it was divine timing and it was perfect procrastination because last night I had something that happened that I can't talk about yet because it's, it's still for a week, which is driving me crazy. But I'll tell you all in the group next week. Um, I had something. Actually, I can tell you guys. It's never going to get back to the person. No, I won't, I can't. No, sorry. <laughs> anyway, something happened last night that shifted my percep- perception wildly and. I didn't realize that until I woke up this morning and I started journaling and I suddenly realized why what I had been trying to do wasn't working and what I what it was I really wanted to do which was something quite different and as a result I now realize I can look back and be really grateful for that 3-day frustration that it was actually I was just as well I didn't put it out there because it was completely wrong the thing I thought I was making was not what I was wanted to make. Um, there was a lot of emotion tied up in those three days. And I have a suspicion that if I had allowed myself to feel the emotions properly, I might not have, it might not have taken three whole days for me to get on board with what it is I actually want to do. I might have got to the clarity of saying, actually, I want to do this even though it's not standard, even though it's not, I can't point to anyone else who's doing it. In fact, that's probably a good thing. Even though it seems like a mad thing to do, I might have got to that earlier if I'd been willing to allow myself to feel the emotions of of that period. Or not, I don't know. But either way, I would have felt, I think there would have been less turmoil if I'd just been willing to go, to say, this is driving me freaking out of my mind. Screw this. I'm just going to go to the ice cream shop and get an ice cream. Maybe that would have helped unlock things a bit earlier. So when we talk about this a lot, like deliberate creator training says you don't indulge it. You find the quickest, best feeling side. You move on as, as efficiently as you possibly can. And we also know that when you're feeling something, that putting a smiley face on it probably does exactly what you just said. It makes it stick around longer than if you mm. actually, I'm going to say, indulge. Like what if you just really fully got in the moment of feeling it? It's probably going to move along much more quickly. I mean, if you can shift it, shift. But where it's not shifting, we have to be willing to own what we want to release. And even Abraham Hicks says that. You know, people kind of forget that one of the that when when people someone's in the hot seat and they ask, you know, what do I do when I'm feeling bad? They will often say, own it and move on. And because they say it so quickly, we tend to forget that they're saying the same thing. We've got to own it. You can't pretend that it's not real. So you do. You have to. And I, I suspect that owning it, especially when it's something we're, mm, what's the word, wary of or we we sort of when we think when we think we ought to avoid it because some rule in law of attraction world says thou shalt not feel bad. <laughs> um, when we kind of have that story going on, we in a way we have to be willing to indulge it in order to own it because we're so we become so well trained at avoidance that we sort of have to swing the other way. I think I I, I don't know I, I'm not definitive about this, but I have a suspicion. I certainly. When I've experimented with this on the on the occasions when I've remembered this and I've been willing to go and have the have the hissy fit or just to kind of stomp around and say screw this for a game of soldiers, it it shifts faster. Mm-hmm. Is right? She wouldn't necessarily think anger was a negative emotion. She wouldn't feel like she needed to avoid it for any reason. I mean, it would just be one of the emotions that she felt intensely. A mm. LOA bill to, to label some things as really positive because 
unpleasant. Some things is really negative because they're not, and there is some wisdom in that. But I think there's also a lot of wisdom not necessarily naming some things as bad and some things as good. I, anger doesn't have to be bad. It, it might not be worthy of avoiding at all. Agreed. And I, I tend to avoid the words good and bad when it comes to emotions. I'll talk about painful um, or helpful or pleasant. Um, but I agree with that. I, I'm, I'm really strongly of the opinion that it's about the direction of movement. And you can't move into a more, you can't move towards relief. You can't move towards the more pleasant feeling when you're avoiding the the fact that actually genuinely deep down you feel angry or sad or whatever it might be. Those emotions have a purpose and um, they're sacred. We, we do ourselves a big disservice when we push them away too soon. Agreed. Felicia, do you have any thoughts on allowing yourself to be affected? Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, being in this health process, um, I am around the healthcare system and not in the political big picture healthcare, but like the very nuts and bolts of how our healthcare is working right now. And there's a lot that makes me really mad. Um, and it's interesting cause it, it's a little bit difficult to navigate cause I'm trying to focus on my healing, which feels like holding anger doesn't always feel very healing um but then also a lot of times when I do really let myself feel the anger like let's say there's like one particular topic um that's making me angry and sometimes I'll let myself really feel it and then I'm able to let it go but I don't necessarily feel like I've put that anywhere like, I feel like I've run it through my system, but I haven't necessarily done anything with it, so to say. And so then I can let it go. But then when it comes up again, it seems like it's coming up with even more force. Um, but it's difficult because a lot of the things I get angry about, I don't necessarily have control over. Well, and I think that's that's frustrating the things that we are angry about that we feel we can't control. And my grandmother was fine when I died, and I remember a whole bunch of grandma-isms. I mean, one of the things that she used to say a lot about anger, because like I said, it's a fiery bunch of women that she was born from, <laughs> was that you can't, anger is not a stationary emotion. You can't actually hold it. Like, and that kind of what brought my attention to that was when you said holding anger. Like you're either actively holding it down or you are moving anger because anger is a, is an emotion that is always in motion, which is why it is either constructive or destructive. It doesn't sit in one place. So I would say, you know, maybe reframe that from holding anger to moving anger. And at least there's some fluidity in that. It doesn't feel so permanent. It feels like it's going to move through and be and be on its way, or be doing something else. Yes, I really like just the way that sounds. I mean, I think when I had said some t- sometimes I feel like I'm able to like channel it. Usually, when I do that, it results in me saying something or coming to some conclusion about the circumstance. And that's when I feel like I'm most able to actually then let it go. I can see that, which kind of gets us to number two. And I think this one is interesting in that the reason, at least in my family, right, the reason we were taught we must control our anger I mean, that's suppress our anger was because we were taught that our anger caused us to behave in ways that wasn't pretty, that wasn't attractive. Like, you, I mean, you're going to be out of control. You're going to do something or say something. I mean, number two here is to practice feeling very, very angry if you want to and controlling your behavior at the same time. The more often you can experience that burning feeling 
and know that you can still manage your behavior, that you don't actually have to be out of control. You're not necessarily going to be destructive if you don't want to be. The easier it is to give yourself permission to feel it completely. I mean, a goddess knows her feelings only impacts people around her if her behavior allows that to happen. And so if we can feel intensely and still manage our behavior as we choose to, it gets very, very easy to experience that full range of motion without apology and without fear. And a goddess is never going to let loose if it's not intentional. She might let loose, but it's not going to happen unintentionally. So practicing feeling the feelings and controlling our behavior gives us a greater capacity to feel our feelings. Janet, thoughts? This is an interesting one, isn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, that's gonna be, I, I think that's going to be fun. <laughs> I think I already do this to a certain extent in my communication on social media where I will see something that makes me angry and then I will decide what to do with that. Because I always believe, I, I learned from Carla McLaren's work, the idea that anger, the experience of anger, the emotion of anger is a sign that a boundary has been breached of some kind. So the question to ask is what boundary has been breached and what is there to do about it? What can be done about it? What can I do about that? And so that's been a really useful um, thing for me to play with, but I, I really like the idea of, of, of maybe doing it in larger ways or in um, more specific ways. Because certainly, in terms of politics, I can find, I can find stuff to be angry about in Australia and in America at the drop of a hat. <laughs> That's not going to be hard. <laughs> I think this is something that I've gotten much better at in my intimate relationships. I mean, because I used to repress so much, particularly in my marriage, I'll just name it, because I used to suppress my anger so often, boy, I, I was afraid of the day that we got in a fight and I let it loose because I knew I was going to hurt somebody, my husband particularly. And now that I suppress less, I won't say that I never do it, I do, but now that I suppress less, and I'm more practiced at feeling without wielding the fire of it. I don't worry so much about hurting somebody around me when I'm pissed. I, mean, I used to just be vicious. It was awful. It just really quite literally terrible. And I don't do that that way anymore. But it was an intentional practice of being with it differently that allowed me not to be afraid of my own emotions, that I would hurt somebody around me with them. Mm. Alicia, do you have any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I, I feel that I've actually been working on that in my intimate relationships as well. Um, and I think I've had actually some really good experiences with it recently. And I've noticed, I think for me, like the two keys are determining before I speak if I'm reacting or responding. Um, because I feel like I can be very reactive and I, I'm not thinking about what I'm saying. That's when I'm lashing out more. But when I take a moment and really feel into it and then respond to whatever is going on it feels more empowered. And I think the other thing is usually that that difference has to do with me speaking my truth rather than lashing out about the situation. Yeah, I can see that. And it requires you to feel it so you can respond instead of lashing out as a protective mechanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, number three. And number three has to do with expression. And I think this is really important. And it's, this is another area where women really have a benefit over men. But number three really comes down to expanding your vocabulary about your feelings. I mean, are you sad or are you remote, morose? Are you happy or are you ecstatic? Are you angry or are you frustrated or are you disappointed? 
I mean, there have been studies done on this particular issue with men having to do with color. Like, men only have, like, 12 colors in their vocabulary, and that's, like, a really color-proficient man. Women have 30, 40, 50 colors in their vocabulary. And it's the same with emotions. I mean, men don't name their emotions naturally with a tremendous amount of specificity. And even for women, learning to expand your emotional vocabulary about your feelings and what they might be helps us to understand our feelings better. I mean, even the distinction for me between angry and frustrated. If I can name it as frustration, then I process and deal with that differently. But if I'm not thinking about it, I might just knee-jerk and think I'm angry. Or if I can name it as disappointment or, I don't know, what's another what's another one for sad? Like that morose feeling. Like the, the quality of the definition of an emotion makes it very easy to explain experience it with the intensity that it actually deserves and is, and therefore be with it and release it without mulling on it in the same way if we're not really clear about what we're feeling. And so emotional vocabulary really, really matters. And I have a feeling, this is an area, Janet, that you're very good at. I have, you probably have a very wide emotional vocabulary. I don't know. It's expanding, I think. Um, I think I'm expanding. I, I don't know that I am as precise as I could be. Um, if somebody were to ask me how I'm feeling and and require me to be precise, then that would elicit some careful words around it. I, I would I would put my focus there. But when it's just me and it's just the dialogue in my head, I don't think I'm as good as at it as as I could be. <laughs> I could see why you would think that, but I would have to, at this stage, disagree and say, you know, actually, I think I'm, I think I've, I've leaned too far into the avoidance and less into the. I, I, I suspect that, even though I know intellectually the value of you know my emotions and the fact that they're sacred and and that kind of stuff. I suspect that my actual behavior on a day-to-day basis is still veering towards the I don't want to look at it and I don't want to give it a name because then I'm focusing on on it too much. So this is going to be really, really interesting for me to do. And I think it's going to be very effective because now that the challenge is kind of in my face <laughs> to say, you've got to name this, it's going to be much easier. In fact, I really like this because... If the if the little if the little quest uh, is to name the emotion to actually find the words for it, that in, that on itself and I know the research shows this that that on its own helps me to connect to that emotion, which then allows it to flow without resistance, mm-hmm. which then means it can pass more quickly. I will say, from a political standpoint. I mean, a lot of what I would, as a knee-jerk reaction, interpret as anger is actually fear. And I mean, that's, mm-hmm. a, pretty, that's a pretty simple sort of interpretation. It's not, there's nothing revolutionary about that or even too surprising. But my first glance at my emotions being hot and flashy and defensive, it, has, it looks like anger. And it really is fear. And at times, even hopelessness. And hopelessness is a terrible thing to say out loud. But once I identify what it really is, I can at least have a conversation with it that makes sense. And it flows more easily. But, I mean, you're a words girl, which is why it seems like that should be an easy for you. I think it is easier to, as a coach especially, for me to identify other people's emotions with a wider range of emotional vocabulary than my own. I get really elementary with stuff about what I'm feeling unless I'm making an effort to actually understand it and then dialogue with it for what it really is. Mm. Alicia, any thoughts on emotional vocabulary? Yeah, I think it's actually quite interesting. I'm realizing that I have a very wide vocabulary for positive emotions. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
the less positive or the more painful range um, or the darker side, I have a much more limited vocabulary. And I actually think that since I was diagnosed, um, I've been expanding it more because I'm just finding so many more subtleties and layers. Um, but I love words. And so this assignment makes me really excited even to look up like synonyms for like sad or depressed. I'm like, Oh, this will be so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) And it really does. I mean, like Janet said, I mean, this has been studied, like being able to name it accurately helps you to release it more efficiently. So it's a good thing. Um, Number four, this is my favorite. This is, the crux of a lot of the work that I do with couples, actually. Avoid wasting emotional energy on anything older than 48 hours. A lot of cultures believe that the energy of an event or an experience will remain between 48 and 72 hours. After that, it really dissolves into nothingness and it becomes not real. So don't waste your power on anything that doesn't currently exist. Unless, of course, you're using it to conjure something you want more of. A 48-hour rule keeps you emotionally current. I mean, what that means within a couple is that you can't fight about what happened last week or last month or last year. And when you're really practicing that, it forces you to stay emotionally current. And it becomes almost an energy hygiene practice. Like if I know that I've got something that's upsetting me and I need to be I can't bring it up later, I'm much more likely to actually process it or express it or deal with it in real time. So that 48 to 72 hour rule as an energy hygiene stance is really, really effective. But it also helps us to be much more clean with the anger we actually do feel because we're not dragging things into the future or pulling things out from the past that fuel things, that fuel little bits of anger or whatever that are being stimulated to something else, if that makes any sense at all. Like I can't, if I express all of my anger this week and I really do express it, it's not likely to come up as a resentment that fuels a small thing in the future. So that 48 to 72 hour rule is a big deal. Janet, thoughts on that one? Yeah, that one that one makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. I do have a question about um uh for anyone who is and I may well be including myself in this. I, I I don't I'm not aware of anything, but that doesn't mean there isn't anything. But um for anyone who has stuff that they're still hanging on to, um old resentments, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, do you have a specific way that you recommend getting current and knowing that you uh, I'm just thinking about how I know one of the things that has made it difficult for me in the past to express anger is well it's two things actually that might be worth teasing out one is my own capacity for dredging up ancient history the other is the other person's capacity for dredging up ancient history which obviously I can't do anything about um, other than setting intentions that they won't um but on those occasions when someone does, what can I do to kind of inoculate myself from getting triggered and drawn and sucked back into that previous, you know, the the major fight that happened in, I don't know, 1923 or whatever it was, <laughs> if you know what I mean, or feels like it did. I mean, I think if you're working with a partner, a spouse, a significant other, I mean, this can be a rule that you engage in together, which is useful. Mm. I mean, that is helpful that both people are on that same page for the 48-72 hour rule. But in terms of just your own stuff that you may not have processed effectively that might roll back up on you because you didn't, I mean, I am a big fan of energy clearing techniques like PS Tech or EFT or your burning technique. Like, if that stuff comes up on me and it's no longer sort of age appropriate, it's aged out, then it's on me to clear it. And we have tools to do that with. And so, I mean, when David and I first implemented this rule, and actually I implemented it with my mother first. My mom and I went through this process. And I think both of us had some releasing to do. 
that on things that would creep back up. But all it is at that juncture is just sort of a shadow of the energy. So it's pretty easy to clear out with an energy clearing technique. That makes sense. That makes sense. Thank you. I mean, where it gets harder is when we continue to attach it to a story, where we continue to attach it as evidence of something that's happening now that supports a story or a belief. I mean, if we just, if we just detach it from all of its story, it, it's just a shadow. It's a fragment. It's, it's a waft of something that is usually pretty easy to clear. Alicia, thoughts on 24 to, or I'm sorry, 48 to 72 hour rule? I really like it. I also especially like what you were just saying as evidence, because I think, I know I have done this and I have seen it in a lot of women, but probably also people as evidence of a pattern, um, using it as proof of, proof of a pattern. Right. Which, well, and we, we just prove feel stuck. Right, right? <laughs> yeah. We're always in the process of proving ourselves right. So if we're dredging stuff up from the past to prove that pattern, we're just creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And those self-fulfilling prophecies can be very, very powerful to shift because we've invested a lot of energy in proving ourselves right over time. But it, it starts to dissolve pretty quickly when you refuse to dredge anything up. And staying emotionally current is really healthy like it's it's healthy for our relationships and for our bodies and all of it so it's worth for sure what were the um energy releasing techniques you said you said eft and something else ps tech i am a big fan of ps tech that's p is in peter s is in sam t e c and you can get that system at pstech.org I should own stock in that man's work because I am constantly referring <laughs> to it. Um, he has what they he does what he calls a click track, and there's a free click track on his website that you don't ever have to pay for anything again. I mean, it doesn't cost you anything. He's certainly got a lot to sell, but you don't need to buy any of it. I actually prefer PS Tech over EFT. Um, but, I mean, there's lots of clearing systems. I mean, yoga might be effective, like just movement of body might mm-hmm. do it if we're doing it with the intention of release. Thank you. All right. I'm going to skip ahead and do the last one we'll cover today on this list is number six, which just kind of culminates everything we've talked about. Refuse to deceive. Do not grin and bear it. Do not say you're okay when you're not. Do not say it's okay when it isn't. The silent treatment or being passive-aggressive are mortal habits, and a goddess won't lower herself to that level. I mean, I think culturally, again, talk about cultural training, we are so trained to say, I'm okay, or I'm great, I feel great, or that's okay, or when it, when it is not, and we are not. And those lies we tell other people about how things really are, are really lies that we're telling ourselves that once again causes us to bank down or dull our emotions, and they add up cumulatively over time. When somebody asks you how you are and you don't tell the truth, or when you're grinning and saying everything's fine, when it feels like shit on the inside, the only thing we are doing ultimately is dimming our ability to feel joy on the other side of that spectrum. And it is so culturally almost required to put a smiley face on it and grin and bear it when it's not bearable at times or even when it's just unpleasant at times. So refusing to deceive about how you're really feeling or how you really are is a very goddess-esque quality. I mean, we we do it because it makes us, again, quote, appropriate, and yet it dims the things that make us most attractive. So, Janet, refuse to deceive thoughts. Yeah, this is a good one, isn't it? Um, (laughs) Literally this morning I had a moment where um, I was making breakfast, my husband said something, and I went straight into anger, and 
I it was a really interesting moment of kind of going, I know that I'm angry. I know that what he said was not said with any um, with the intention that I've assumed, and I have a choice. I have a choice here to kind of express the fact that that thing he said made me, you know, that I that it, that it made me angry, or I have a choice to kind of go to explore why it made me angry and deal with it on my own. And past experience suggested that dealing with it on my own was going to make for a, a much more pleasant morning because I have, you know, we have the capacity to go into a three-day sulk when, uh, when anger is expressed in the way that isn't helpful and this is a this is someone I've been in a relationship with for what 28 years now so we know it nearly 30 years we know each other incredibly well and there was that moment of going so as you were saying that I'm thinking did I was I being deceptive then and I thought I wasn't deceiving myself which I think is the key part here um, and since my husband and I'm not sure if I'm justifying here, but my husband didn't say, it, he was teasing. It wasn't said with any intention of starting a fight or putting me down or any of those things. Um, my reaction was something that I'm happy to own fully. Uh, so in a sense, there was deception there, but maybe the way to avoid the deception is to wait until I'm you know, within the 24-hour window to say, I got angry about that thing you said that he probably won't even remember, remember having said. Um, so I don't know whether that conversation needs to happen because I, I got, I got the, the, um, I got the benefit of noticing my own response and noticing what had led up to it. And I, I I'm not out to change the way he talks to me because I, if that wasn't the issue so it's a really interesting one to kind of to tease out and feel feel my way through the nuances of it I think that that is one of the beauties of the window right that 48 to 72 hours mm. it gives us enough time that we're not we don't have to be hot on the draw because let's face mm. it that's not always going to work particularly in my case like I'm better off to take a breath and walk away for a minute and, yeah. and make those evaluations, kind of sort through it and do that determination and figure out what's constructive and what's destructive and what needs to be spoken and what can be left behind. I mean, and as long as you're holding true to that 72-hour rule, you'll learn that you can't, you'll learn what needs to be dealt with and needs to be expressed. So, yes. I mean, I think it it gives you an opportunity, a window of introspection and self-growth before you turn something outward that is really useful. Yeah, that's what it felt like. It, that's exactly what it felt like. It felt like me sort of taking a breath and going, I could just, you know, I could go into a sulk or I could, you know, there were any number of things I could have done, none of which would have been helpful in that situation and none of none of which would have advanced my growth, none of which would have would have advanced our relationship in any way at all, um, and then being able to kind of step back and go, okay, wh where what's what's the interplay between the not just you know the the, the deception, the, the 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 decision not to deceive anymore, and what I actually want to to what I want the outcome to be, and I think I think the key. I don't know, for me anyway, the key here is about whether I'm deceiving myself. And I feel quite happy that I'm not. I like it. Good. Alicia, do you have thoughts on, on <laughs> agreeing not to deceive? Yeah, I feel like this is a big, big thing I'm working on. And I think I recognize that I have always wanted to present a positive side of myself um but in this journey that I'm on right now there's just a lot of less than positive times and times I don't feel good and being honest with 
everyone about it is really, I think, really important for me, for my healing and for actually being able to get support from people because I think that's one of the things I see is that if I'm not being truly honest about what's going on, it doesn't allow space for people to be supportive. Right. I mean, I will just stand aside that I think that's something you've done really well. Like we started the call today before Jen and I said, how are you? And you said, you know, nicer, but you said, I'm shit. I don't feel helpful <laughs> information for me. That's actually quite helpful. And I think you've, you've done a very good job at nailing that. So yeah, good job. Thank you. And we're at the top of the hour. Any final thoughts on any of this before we close the call today? I just want to say how perfect this timing is, I think, um, for all of us um, collectively. And and the value of it for me personally, I'm really... It's funny, I, I think I said this last week, you know, this this material is landing so differently from me, for me from the way it did the last time I accessed it. It's just awesome. I love it. It's landing different for me, and I wrote it. <laughs> in a lot of yep. ways, it feels like, you know, it feels, and it is. I mean, I'm a different person than I was then. But it feels like it was written for now, then. It makes more sense to mm-hmm. me now than it did then. So, mm-hmm. okay. All right. Until next week. I had problems with the mailing provider this week. Everybody had problems with every provider this week, I think. Amazon was causing all kinds of problems around the universe. But I will get the material out earlier this week so we get next week's goddess with a little more time to play with her before the call. And well, bananas. You guys have Thank a you, Lisa. Hey, Janet. I'll talk with you later. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.